This is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. A Gallup poll released earlier this month shows Americans are increasingly concerned about climate change. Around two-thirds of us now say we're either somewhat worried or very worried about the climate. That's an eight-year high. But it doesn't come close to reflecting the near unanimity within the scientific community about the reality of a changing climate and its implications for the future. And yet, even among scientists and policy experts for whom climate is an urgently important issue, people who agree that a major reduction in carbon emissions is needed immediately, there's a surprisingly diverse range of views about how best to accomplish that. I think there's some, you know, polar opposing views on some of these technologies, right? Um, and it's quite controversial. And I don't think that controversy is because some of us are right and some of us are wrong. I think we're just valuing and looking at and paying attention to different things. PEC's Achieving Deep Carbon Reductions conference held this week in Pittsburgh put many of these voices in dialogue. The goal was to seek out paths to decarbonization of Pennsylvania's electricity sector. Well, today we're going to hear from a few of those voices in the first of what will be several episodes built out of panel discussions and interviews we gathered at the conference. Now, one of our core premises in organizing this event was that we really need to consider a variety of energy sources, technologies, and economic strategies, especially those that have occasioned controversy in the past within the environmental community. Well, nuclear power is pretty high up on that list. I spoke about it with Amber Robson of the Washington, D.C.-based think tank Third Way. She was one of the panelists in a session titled Nuclear Power, Obsolete Technology or Key to Decarbonized Future. So Third Way has a clean energy team, um, and our objectives are to come up with um, innovative solutions to address climate change. And um, a few years ago, we, uh, while reviewing the different technologies available to tackle climate change, we realized that there were two technologies that had a really important role to play, um, nuclear energy and carbon capture and storage that didn't have um, a, a sort of an advocate in DC. So in the area of nuclear energy, um, we look at both sort of the existing nuclear fleet and the threats that it's, it's facing um, and what will happen if those nuclear units close in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And then we also work on the advanced nuclear fleet in terms of supporting innovation so that these technologies can advance towards commercialization. Since the organization started the advanced nuclear work, um, we have seen a lot of positive movement um, both uh, on the Hill in D.C. and also um, within the, the labs of the Department of Energy. Um, we've seen bipartisan bills passed in support of um, research and development of advanced nuclear technologies and in support of developing new licensing pathways for nuclear. Um, and we've seen enormous momentum um, kind of built up around this technology and interest from um, investors and policymakers and uh, environmental advocates and, and on and on. So it's going quite well. And so the momentum has been picking up fairly recently, I take it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I believe um, this work sort of started with um, third way publishing a map that identified all of the different um, private interests that were researching these technologies and that was just in um, 2015. Um, so it hasn't even been two years and things have really mothballed. So mothballed, snowballed. snowballed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So what's the disposition looking ahead now that things have changed a bit in Washington? Well, we're still trying to get a sense of how things are changing for nuclear. Um, nuclear has pretty strong support on both sides of the aisle. Um, um, so we are hoping that this continued support will will be there. Um, as soon as the House started the new session, they immediately passed um, one of these bipartisan bills supporting R&D for nuclear. And so um, the interest is still still there um, and the support is still there. So we are hoping to see continued support for research and development of advanced nuclear technologies in this session. What is the biggest barrier right now to nuclear uh, fulfilling the role that it should be in our energy mix? Is it political? Is it technological? Well, I think sort of one of the most important ones that we talk about is overcoming the economic challenges. Um, if we are going to deploy new advanced nuclear technology, um, it's going to have to make a business case. It's going to have to be economic. And in order to do that, it's going to have to um, design itself into um, a unit that we can deploy economically. This is one of the things that they're looking at in advanced nuclear designs is creating standardized designs um, and simpler designs that can be constructed in a, in a manufacturing sort of factory setting. Whereas currently, most of our nuclear designs have to be, you know, they're unique builds, they're built on site. Um, so if we can do this in the factory setting, um, we're going to end up saving a lot of the on-site construction costs, um, and we're also going to be able to build them a lot faster, which will help with being able to deploy the t technology a lot faster. Where, where are we at with public perception of nuclear? You know, we still remain in a place where public perception of nuclear is not um, very positive. Um, these are, I haven't looked at, um, I haven't looked at the literature. I do know that um, it is more often women who are not supporters of, of nuclear energy, and we think that this is um, an issue that needs to be tackled. There needs to be a lot more work done to educate and reach out to um, the different sectors of society to try to help them understand better um, nuclear energy. Within sort of the environmentalist sphere, mm -hmm. how, how have you seen perception change? Is there more openness to nuclear than there was maybe 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of environmentalists who, like me, um, when you start looking at the context of deep decarbonization um, and what we really need to save ourselves literally from climate change um, is to take a risk on some of these technologies. It's, it's a game of balancing risks right now and um, you know when you look at it that way I think that people start to realize that there might be more at stake here with climate change than there is with nuclear energy. So. So what's it going to take for that uh, sensibility to get out beyond the environmental community to the larger public? Well, I think the whole conversation on deep decarbonization is new. You know, I did my master's degree in energy policy and climate in, uh, I guess, 2013. And even then, we weren't talking about reaching zero carbon. We were still kind of in this incremental sort of major nebulous major reductions area but I think like once people start understanding that we need to get to zero carbon and we need to get there fast um, I think the shift is going to start to happen and so I think it's just now that deep carbonization messaging is starting to reach people. 
So how are you finding the conference so far? Is anything stuck with you? Yeah, I'm first of all just completely impressed that um, Peck has taken the initiative to organize a conference like this. Um, because like I say, deep decarbonization is an issue that hasn't really been talked about and nobody has really taken it by the horns to say, listen, we need to come up with a strategy to fight this. Um, so that is really great and I also really appreciate um, that you're taking a very balanced approach um, to exploring these technologies that are typically, um, you know, a little bit more controversial or, um, you know, not as supported by the public. So I think that's fantastic. Are there any uh, questions that you came here with that you're hoping to have answered or maybe that you already have had good answers to? I'm, I'm just curious about the context at the state level and, um, you know, my thinking has traditionally been at at the federal level and so it's kind of trying to figure out what is the state's role in this how can states take the lead and how can state level policy interact with the federal level policy to to help us reach those goals and so um, states are definitely going to have to be leaders the next few years and and so i'm interested to see what that's going to look like do you feel optimistic um i feel hopeful <laughs> yes Thank you, Amber. Yeah, my pleasure. That's Amber Robson of Third Way. Well, some of the liveliest debate this week was around the topic of carbon capture and storage. Proponents of the technology see an opportunity to reduce emissions and perhaps even create economic value through carbon byproducts that have commercial or industrial applications. Critics, like Jenny Stevens of Northeastern University, argue that resources invested in CCNS research would be better spent on reducing consumption of fossil fuels. I've worked on carbon capture and storage for over a decade, thinking about the possibilities for it and preparing for the potential, um, again, with a concern about climate change and decarbonization. But over time, I've, when I realized the magnitude of investment and the time frame by which it could actually help us and the uh, degree to which it was presenting it as a possibility, kind of a, almost a felt false sense of optimism that we can continue to have a fossil fuel based system and mitigate climate change simultaneously. And I think we really need to be moving away from fossil fuels and not investing in advanced fossil fuel technology because I think there's a lot of social costs associated with fossil fuel our fossil fuel based energy system beyond carbon that are not accounted for um, and that we're we are going to be paying the cost for anyway in in other ways so the sooner we can move away from our fossil fuel dependence and move toward more renewable based energy systems we can enhance our social systems as well tell me more though about the social costs you mentioned yeah, fossil fuels, I mean, this, this conference was primarily about decarbonization to meet climate goals, right, and to mitigate climate change. And fossil fuel burning is the primary source of the carbon that we're worried about. But one of the things that uh, the discussion, when you focus on, in, on the problem in that way, is you don't adequately account for all the other negative externalities of extracting fossil fuels and you know, the geopolitical dimensions of fossil fuels and also the influence of the fossil fuel industry on our pol political system. So all of those things put together lead us to understand that 
fossil fuel reliance and fossil fuel use has lots of negatives that we are not adequately considering in our decisions. So it's much beyond climate mitigation and carbon emissions. Um, there are many other social negatives, including one of the things that I'm most concerned about, I'm very concerned about climate change, but I'm also very concerned about growing inequality in our society. And I think our current energy system is perpetuating that inequality. And so I think the renewable energy transition should be advanced much more aggressively. And I think there are lots of potentials for social change and other social goods for society, for democracy, for individuals, households, and communities as we are able to reduce our fossil fuel reliance. Is there anything to the idea that by capturing carbon you could make it into something useful that would have economic value that wouldn't have to be subsidized or wouldn't have to be you know, propped up by policy? Th you know, there are various ideas um, that were mentioned in the session that we just had, um, but the capturing the carbon dioxide is the most expensive part. And so if you want to use the, cap the carbon dioxide in some other form, you still have to do that very expensive part. So that's where the costs of capturing the CO2 to do anything with it, whether you want to store it underground or use it in some way, is so high that it doesn't really make sense um, from my perspective. Yeah. I mean, is there any prospect of the technology improving to the point where it will be more practical anytime soon? Um, with technology advancements, you, we never know. You know, um, I've been working on carbon capture and storage um, since 2002. And at that time, there was a lot of optimism. If only we invest, we will be able to reduce costs by this much. And, and a billions of dollars have now been spent, and the costs are still very high. Mm -hmm. So um, sure, there could be, you know, if there was a way to reduce the costs, particularly of that carbon capture, um, and that's what I think a lot of the current cutting-edge research is working toward. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know the details of, of how likely that is. And it's still, I mean, it's a very, uh, basically there's not a lot of carbon dioxide in the flue gas or in the atmosphere percentage-wise. So if you're trying to take it out, it, it takes a lot of energy to do that, right? Because you have to um, think about the temperature and the pressure and get it to a certain condition to be able to separate the carbon dioxide. And it's a very energy-intensive process. Um, it's estimated to be about 30% energy penalty, meaning for every three power plants with carbon capture and storage, you'd need another whole power plant just to provide the energy, the additional energy at this point. So you said you've been working on carbon capture for a while. Would, I mean, would it be accurate to say that you were a, more of a believer at one point and that that's changed, or have you been kind of skeptical all along? Um, yeah, no, I think at the beginning it was it was kind of new and there was a, a an exciting hype around it. And I also, in my own evolution of my thinking, you know, was more of a scientist and engineer's perspective. Like, you know, we have a problem of climate change. What could we do to solve it? But as I have, my own thinking has evolved and I've been learning more about how, oh, what the technology's possibilities are and uh, why we're supporting it, how much we're supporting it and all of that, I have become more skeptical that it's a good investment because of the long time horizon, the very high cost, the the scale that by which it would ne be needed to ha even have an impact is so far from where we are with the few demonstration projects we have now that the level of investment to get to the place where we would need to be to have it have an impact on climate is just orders of magnitude more and it, we're already spending 
quite a bit of money, and it's not clear that that money is, is money well spent. Keeping the fossil fuels in the ground, you know, doesn't sound politically feasible, but things are changing in the world quicker than a lot of people realize, and I think there's opportunities for more radical thinking and, and envisioning and even uh, policy that assumes a more radical shift um, rather than just muddling along. I mean, obviously, we have to deal with where we are right now, it's a, and we have our whole legacy infrastructure, and it's, it, it's not um, easy to transition away from that, and we will obviously still be reliant on fossil fuels for, for some time to come, for sure. But I think my, my own sense is that the most cost-effective thing to do big picture on a macro level, is to move away from fossil fuels. We risk really losing ground and losing competitiveness, losing jobs, losing health, and there are other parts of the world that are going to, uh, that have already surpassed us in terms of technological and social change to facilitate a, a, a renewable energy transition. What do you make of the conference? It's Any been great. Yeah. It's been really, really good. I'm very impressed with the structure of the conference um, in terms of there aren't very many conferences that I've gone to that have had this kind of a structure that's really very intentionally opening, opening up to hear diverse perspectives. And I think none of these technologies or, or approaches to thinking about decarbonization are straightforward. And I think it's very valuable to have this kind of a dialogue and bring in experts with, with very different perspectives. I think there's some, you know, polar opposing views on some of these technologies, right? Um, and it's quite controversial. And I don't think that controversy is because some of us are right and some of us are wrong. I think we're just valuing and looking at and paying attention to different things. You know, I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm very concerned about climate change, but I'm also very concerned about other social justice issues and the environmental and social justice impacts of our energy system. And I actually see a lot of potential for the renewable energy transition to um, do much more than decarbonization in terms of reducing inequalities and, and bringing a more engaged and distributed system of empowerment to people and communities. Professor Jenny Stevens of Northeastern University. There was also plenty of support for carbon capture and storage from speakers like David Moeller, formerly of the U.S. Department of Energy. He believes CCNS technology is close to a breakthrough that could upend the whole economic calculation. My name's David Moeller, and I'm an ex-everything. Uh, <laughs> that's, ex that's pretty bad. Ex-DOE senior executive official and ex-chief technology officer of Duke Energy. I was... Uh, in, active uh, in my Duke Energy and even prior to that my Synergy days in uh, you know kind of thinking about how to reconfigure the generation fleet that we had in those days to be lower carbon and one of the things that we developed was a plan to build an NGCC plant at Edwardsport, Indiana as part of our fleet that uh, is up operating in carbon capture capable not sequestering at the moment to a, due to a number of different technical difficulties but uh, it was uh, the first uh, in the U.S. built the, with that capability that's actually operating. Uh, at DOE, I was actually responsible for the coal and carbon management portfolio in the fossil energy division and uh, managed a roughly $600 million R&D budget uh, that was largely distributed through the national labs to work on those technologies and uh, then also managed the political end of that 
you know, up on the hill and, and with uh, various governmental agencies and representatives to see how those technologies could best be positioned to meet the uh, objectives that we established as uh, an administration. So how far have you seen those technologies come in the time you've been working in this area? A long way. Uh, you know, what I, what I tell people now is I really see CCUS in particular at a very, very large tipping point. In fact, if you go back to Granger Morgan's talk from this morning, he showed the learning curves for Sox and Knox for the, uh, you know, the criteria pollutant technologies and mentioned that, that it's not, it doesn't start at a high point and immediately go down. There's a bit of an upward spike when things don't work at first and then goes down. We're, we're kind of at the, I think, I think we're kind of at the crest of that spike and ready to go down. So there are a number of facilities operating in the world today that actually are capturing carbon and in many cases sequestering. They're not as economic as we would like. Uh, and part of it is for the reasons that Granger talked about, and it's just my belief that we're on the verge of some real breakthroughs, both in terms of new capture technologies, but also in terms of learning and how we can now really start coming down the learning curve. Is there a way in which that, you know, that promise and that potential maybe works against the need to be more energy efficient or be smarter about the, the mix of, uh, of sources that we use? Well, I think you've heard many times today, and I'm going to confirm the message that we need all of the above. What's very difficult to conceptualize, I think, is just how big the issue of CO2 is. And you're talking about massive quantities of stuff that you've got to do something with. And to think that any one approach is going to be able to deal with that, with the problem of kind of that magnitude, doesn't grasp the scope of it. So that's how I'd respond. So what, what have you made of uh, some of the other sessions today? Well, I think this has been a really, really good day. I think the sessions have been very good. I'm, I'm impressed at the quality. I'm impressed at the level of engagement. And so I've, you know, I congratulate Peck and everybody that was responsible for putting this together. And the, and the other presenters have been fantastic. Uh, and frankly, I'm, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow as you know, the environmental community kind of responds to what they've heard today. I think that should be incredibly interesting. only scratched the surface of this week's conversations on carbon capture and storage at the conference. We'll dig deeper in future episodes, but we'll close out this week's show with thoughts from Lars Lang of Washington County, PA. He came to the conference to learn more about renewables, but he spoke up in one of the sessions to share his perspective on the larger political dimension of the climate problem. Lars introduced himself as a former coal miner who often gets into arguments with friends and relatives who don't necessarily share his views on carbon and climate. I live in a little coal mining community, Mariana, which is in the southern part of Washington County. I have an engineering degree from Penn State University, graduated in 1986, spent most of my underground time, actually a small mine my father had in Somerset County while I was in college. Worked underground in Germany while I was in college, but most professionally I've worked for Consol Energy at three different times, uh, twice at underground mines locally, and spent a little bit of time um, in uh, Australia looking for coal resources. I've also on the side done some service work as an independent business person underground. Is that what brought you to the conference? The main thing that brought me to the conference, I do have an interest in renewables renewable energies, mainly biomass is where my experience is, but also this uh, transitioning, a good way to transition 
so that these areas such as where I live in Washington County or West Virginia, Greene County, can make a smooth transition to um, a, a, new, a new type of economy. What does that new type of economy look like? Well, that's like there was a study the other day about the need for infrastructure improvements, gas, maybe gas-related, renewables, um, some sort of manufacturing. I think that's the big problem. I've, I haven't heard a, a solution so far from anybody. Are you at all encouraged by the idea that some of the jobs that have been lost with what's happened to the coal industry could be replaced with the renewables or, or other kind of emerging? The thing I don't know enough about there is coal miners make a very good living. Um, they work hard, but if you combine their overtime and things like that, it might be tough to come up with. Based on our present economy, I think it would be difficult to come up with jobs that would pay as much I think that's the, pro the income discrepancy between both before and after. Mm -hmm. I, there, there will be jobs, but I don't think anybody knows the answer right now. You mentioned that you, you have a lot of conversations with people in your life about climate and about coal. What's that like? What well, I think you that um, you see that all, all over the world, actually, when people are used to making a living or their local economies are based on some sort of revenue stream, whatever it is, that um, it's hard for them to imagine a change. Um, I even have relatives in Germany that are working in a similar capacity in areas that are going to be affected by the decline in the coal industry over there and trying to figure out, you know, how do we transition to something different and not lose our level of living. I'm interested in the comparison between how those conversations play out with people in Germany and in southwestern Pennsylvania? Well, I think there's a huge, there's like a wall built around the, the large cities and their close municipalities versus um, people out in the country that are working in these uh, natural resource industries. So first of all, that, that's the same whether it's Germany or the United States. But I do know that from my experience with relatives in Germany that there isn't really a debate about... Um, the need to control carbon. That's not, that's beyond the debate in, at least with my people I know overseas. You try to obtain facts, real facts, maybe try to come up with solutions that don't mean that somebody will lose their job tomorrow, but maybe there'll be a slow transition and it doesn't have to be as bad as, as it's made out to be and that uh, maybe that people aren't always getting honest information from, from their, whoever's employing them or in the news. Thanks a lot, Lars. I appreciate it. Thank you. Just a few of the voices from this week's Deep Decarbonization Conference in Pittsburgh. We brought back hours of audio and video from the event, and we'll be rolling those out in the future. There's a wealth of information and insight to share, so please keep listening to the podcast and keep an eye on the website for more You'll find it at PECPA.org, where you can also stay on top of the latest on environmental legislation and regulation moving in Harrisburg, thanks to our PEC Policy Bill Tracker. You 
can follow Peck on Twitter at PeckPA. And drop us a note by email to share your feedback on Pennsylvania legacies or whatever's on your mind. Find us at legacies at PeckPA.org. Again, L-E-G-A-C-I-E-S at PeckPA.org. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd also appreciate your help spreading the word on the show by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or SoundCloud or just by mentioning us to friends and colleagues. We'd appreciate it. That's all for this week. Back next Friday with another new episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. Until then, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. 